All right, friends, we're in a season after Easter where we're talking and taking a look at different encounters that Jesus had with people after he rose from the grave. You know, there was a period of time, in fact, the book of Acts says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that after his suffering, his crucifixion, uh, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, we often talk and teach about the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry before his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And there's a, a tighter window of time, 40 days, that Jesus appeared to, where it says in another passage of Scripture, to over 500 people. And just to imagine that Jesus, in his resurrected state, different than Lazarus, wasn't just resurrected in physical form, that somehow he was resurrected both physically and spiritually. And as we take a look in each of these weeks in this sermon series after Easter, taking a look at encounters that changed everything, we've seen how when Jesus appeared to Mary, when, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, when Jesus appeared to Peter, not only did it change everything in their lives, but we will see and have seen that it changes everything in our lives as well, that things get unlocked about the mystery, the majesty of who Jesus is. You know, it's one thing for Jesus to teach about something that is about to happen. It's another thing for Jesus to reveal what has already happened. And we've, in this season, taken a look at that. Jesus is revealing things that have already happened. Jesus is revealing things that have already been accomplished. And again, to reiterate, that is not just applicable and phenomenal for them and the people in Scripture. It's applicable and phenomenal for us today. And so in this fourth week of this sermon series, a reminder that you can go back if you miss any in the future, you can go to our YouTube channel and uh, search for Bel Air Church and you can get caught up on the sermon series again entitled Encounters That Changed Everything. So if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to open them up to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Again, this is after Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. As we've seen in the weeks prior, he appears to Mary, he appears to Peter, he appears to Thomas and the other disciples. And now there's this famous moment where two disciples, unnamed disciples, are on their road to Emmaus. Now, Emmaus is the wrong direction. Jesus said before his death, I want you to stay in Jerusalem and I will raise from the grave. He said that. He said, you know, you tear down this temple, I'm going to raise it up in three days. He says at the Last Supper, I will be raised and I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He's saying, stay there. But things happen. And they have now seen the unfolding situation with Jesus as one that causes them to just leave. And it picks up here in verse 13, Luke 24. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near. And went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he, this is Jesus, said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still and looking sad. One of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? 
he, this is Jesus, asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some woman of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he, this is Jesus, said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. It is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he, Jesus, went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Well, he was talking to us on the road while he was opening up the scriptures to us. That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered there. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's word as we say every week, thanks be to God. I've long loved and been fascinated with this section of scripture. You know, I've got a long list, a growing list of questions that I want to ask God one day when I'm in God's presence. Perhaps you have a, a list yourself. One of those questions is, is to Jesus. Jesus, tell me what you told the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I actually believe that it was the greatest sermon in the history of humanity. And it can be summed up in one verse, I want you to take a look at that. Open those Bibles back up if you closed. In verse 27, then beginning with Moses, Luke writes, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all the things about himself and all the scriptures. Now, again, this sermon series is about encounters that changed everything. Encounters between Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and humanity. And these encounters didn't just change something for them, it changed everything for them. And as we take a look at the everything that was changed for those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it's a reminder that that encounter isn't just exclusively reserved for them, but we too today, on whatever date you're encountering this service, you can have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And that encounter can also change everything. First, let's talk about what it changed for them. 
and then what it changes for us. Again, in verse 27, this is the key that I believe unlocks the whole thing. Uh, Though I don't know the answer in detail, in specific detail to my question to Jesus one day of tell me everything that you shared to the disciples on a a seven-mile journey. This wasn't short. It wasn't a small little sermonette. Somehow as they were walking at some point on this seven-mile journey, Jesus referencing Moses and the prophets, which is a shorthand way for saying the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. You see, historically, it has been believed that Moses is the the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, often referred to as the Pentateuch, the law. And the prophets, in many ways, are a shorthand way of describing everything that followed throughout the Old Testament. And what Lucas is keen in on is almost like peeling back the curtain to this eternal truth that Jesus in that moment, the resurrected Christ, in walking with them to Emmaus, reveals to them that the entirety of the Old Testament is about him. And I want you to imagine, not us in modernity with the fullness of the Old and New Testament to look through, but for them in the moment, having taken all their knowledge of God's relationship with Israel, they were well-versed in the, in the redemptive story that God had begun from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were familiar with the stories about Moses, about Esther, about David, about Samuel, about Samson. They were familiar about all these things of Ezra and Isaiah and, and, and all these things, right? And it caused them to have a certain lens on how they viewed the events that had transpired. You see, Luke, in recording this, and I want you to see this again, they were walking and they were discussing all the things that had happened. Verse 14. They had definitions around the things that occurred. They had been talking about all the things, right? And that led them to come to a conclusion. We need to leave Jerusalem. We need to leave Galilee. And we need to go to Emmaus. And so Jesus, he appears to them. And I have no idea why they couldn't recognize him. It says clearly here that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He's also in his resurrected state, fully physical and fully spiritual. So likely he looked different. We know he looked different than he did before his his. His crucifixion, his death, his burial. And Jesus asked them a question. What are you talking about? And again, they use the phrase. Are you the only, this is in uh, verse 18, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place? And Jesus responds and he says, what things? Now, it's so fascinating, the phrase there, uh, the things, is used Three distinct times in this section. 
And you've heard me say before, perhaps you've heard other preachers say before, that whenever you see something done uh, three times in a row, it is a linguistic way to place tremendous emphasis on something. So you've got angels, right? You, you see this in Isaiah and Revelation where they're praising God and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That God is perfect in his holiness. Uh, we see Peter deny Jesus three times to remind us that, that Peter denied Jesus completely and and, and, and perfectly in some ways. And as we discovered a couple of weeks ago, Jesus reinstated Peter perfectly and wholly because he asked him the question, do you love me three times? And here we have that phrase, it's easy to brush past, that phrase, these things, used three times. And what's so remarkable is that they had a clear definition of what these things meant. And what it meant was that Jesus wasn't who he says he was. What it meant was that who they had put their hope in for the last three years didn't measure up. What they had hoped for wasn't happening. In Jesus, in hearing their definition of the circumstances, speaks a word to them that defines, that redefines, that changes their perspective, their definition of what these things meant. And he did so, and this is why I can't wait to hear Jesus' answer when I ask him the question, what did you tell them on the road to Emmaus? That in the kind of loose outline of what he shared was somehow, to reiterate, everything in the Old Testament was about him. In fact, I've so long been fascinated with this that when I was called to be the senior pastor of Bel Air Church uh, from this point eight years ago, that I started with my first sermon series called The Road to Emmaus. And we, over the course of 10 weeks, we allowed this passage to be the doorway in which we entered into the Old Testament and we took a look at different scenes, different significant moments throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures and how we could see through Jesus' point of view how all of that pointed to him. And it completely changed, I believe, those disciples' view of not only everything in the Old Testament, but everything about who Jesus was. You see, for them, likely, as they heard Jesus teach them. It completely changed their view of Abraham. It completely perhaps changed their view of that moment when Abraham almost had to sacrifice Isaac. And again, if you read that story, not just as some moral story of the links that we should go to as humans to demonstrate our faithfulness, but if you read that story as a a sign that points to Jesus, you can read that story differently. And you can see that a father, a human father, Abraham, didn't have to sacrifice his human son, Isaac, because another son, Jesus the Christ, gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice, which majestically and phenomenally is the same geographical location where Abraham went with Isaac 
onto the top of Mount Moriah. It is the same geographical location where Jesus was crucified. Uh, you can look at the story of Moses. You can see Moses from a different lens, that it's not just about some great leader who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the evil forces and the powerful you know, kingdom of the day of Egypt. But somehow we see an archetype, a shadow, a sign in Moses that points to Jesus. As Jesus unlocked to them, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to him. Likely he shared with them how all of the law pointed to Jesus. Remember Jesus said in his earthly ministry, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Perhaps Jesus in that moment pointed to the sacrificial system talked about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, talked about all the different sacrifices that humanity had to do to atone for, to cover for the, the sin that they had committed, the brokenness that caused the chasm between humanity and God. Perhaps Jesus on that road to Emmaus said, I am the true lamb, the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps in that moment, the disciples heard John the Baptist's words differently. Remember, when he saw Jesus for the first time, he said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now they saw it through the lens of all the Old Testament as a foreshadow to Jesus. Perhaps Jesus talked about King David, talked about his earthly kingship and how that was a shadow that pointed to the true kingship of Jesus, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I don't know the fullness of all that Jesus said to them that day. But again, it says in verse 27, that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he shared with them all the things that were said about him in all the scriptures. This is mind-blowing when you begin to realize just what they could have heard that day, how it shifted everything for them. Their hearts were open, their minds were opened. And as they began to see the scriptures with new eyes. Scriptures that were not meant to just be a list of do's and don'ts. Scripture that was not meant to be uh, some disconnected narrative that, that didn't have a cohesive whole. They begin to realize and see that all of it had everything to do with the God that has revealed God's self through Jesus in the flesh, who makes it possible for us to be in relationship with him that Jesus is the true and better Abraham, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Jacob, Joseph, Esther, on and on and on. This remarkable truth, who knows how their hearts and their minds were open and changed. And I believe that as they were walking, that these things that caused them to define what was going on as hopeless, it began to shift. And as it said here in the narrative, they're about to get to the place that they had intended to go. They invite Jesus in. They partake in a meal where there's the breaking of bread. He gives them the bread. And in that moment, uh, reminiscent of the Last Supper, their eyes are open. They, they realize it's Jesus and instantly he's gone. In their immediate reaction, though it is evening, though it's the end of the day, though they've just gone seven miles walking on a dusty, dirty road, they get up and perhaps run. Who knows? Move quickly, much quicker than they move to Emmaus. They go back to Jerusalem. 
And the, these things that formerly caused them to be hopeless, these things have now been redefined as all part of God's salvific, redemptive plan. And they believe. They are transformed. It was an encounter for them that changed everything. Now you might wonder, what does that have to do with us, with you, with me? Well, I want to key in on perhaps just a sliver of what Jesus might have shared to them that is absolutely transformative for us today. You see, the ability to narrate accurately is something that completely changes everything. My oldest son, Judah, when he was uh, just learning how to speak, he had the ability really accurately to narrate everything perfectly. I mean, we would walk together through our house and he'd say, ball, cat, mom, dad, nana, papa, mimi, poppy, kiki, right? He, he would define accurately the things and the people that he saw. When he was hurt, he could accurately describe his hurt, his boo-boo, his ouch. As we moved out in the world, as I began to teach him what things were, he could begin to identify trees, birds, even the different types of trees. He had this ability to look around and say, oak tree, pepper tree, sycamore tree, bluebird. It was this really beautiful thing to see. But sadly, as he grew older, he began to do what every human being has done as they grow up. They begin to misnarrate, to improperly label things. We begin to do what the disciples did back then. We define these things with the wrong words. How many of these are phrases that perhaps we've said at some point in our life? This disease, it's incurable. This relationship, it's irreconcilable. The wrong that they just did to me, it's unforgivable. When we look at a car or a house or a job or another person and we say, I deserve that. When we look at our job, perhaps we say, this is just a dead end. When we look at our good works, our good deeds, what we've done for God, and we say, God owes me. When we look at the bad things we've done and we look at our life, and we don't just say, I made a mistake, but we say, I am a mistake. I am a failure. I'm a good for nothing. Or when we look at the pain and suffering in our life and we say words like, God truly has abandoned me. You see, the reason why that encounter changes everything, not just for them, but for us, is that Jesus reveals that he is the first and last word in everything in the cosmos. 
And this is what I want to key in on today. In fact, when you go back to the very, 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 very beginning of all things, as it's recorded in Scripture, we get different windows into the beginning, multiple parts of Scripture. We get it in Genesis chapter 1. We get it in uh, John chapter 1. We get it in Colossians chapter 1. We get it in Hebrews chapter 1. There are, there are many views on this singular origin story of all things. Words are powerful. Words have the ability to, to describe ourselves, describe others and the situations that we find ourselves in. And often we do what my son grew up into, what the disciples did back then. We use the wrong words to frame our understanding of these things in our life, our situation, our relationships, our circumstance, whatever it might be. And when Jesus reveals himself as the word of God, who has the first word and the last word in everything, it changes everything in our life. Let's go, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 just for a moment. If you would turn there, it says, in the beginning... You're familiar with this, right? Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then verse three, then God said, let there be light. Perhaps you've heard me say before that I actually, I, I do. I believe in the Big Bang Theory. This, this scientific hypothesis that that everything in the universe started with a singular event, that there was this, this explosion, there was this catalytic event that caused everything in creation to, to expand and continue to expand. And as we use scientific instruments to measure the universe, we see that that, that universe is, is still expanding. And we can actually see that what began as a catalytic event is actually spreading out further and further and further every nanosecond, second, minute, hour, year, eon. It just continues to spread out. But I also know what the Big Bang sounded like. Let there be light. That God spoke and all things were created. In fact, it says in the Psalms that God has spread out the universe like a tent. There are passages that allude to God's creation ever expanding. You've heard me say before that I believe that science is catching up to what has already been revealed in Scripture. I do not believe that science and Scripture ultimately contradict one another. I think science will one day support all that has been revealed in Scripture, but to catch this, that God created all things with words. He didn't have a building committee. He didn't have some tool. He didn't uh, just envision it and it happened. Uh, God didn't wave God's hand. God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. And we see throughout Genesis chapter 1 that that God speaks everything into existence. Now, that's one thing to just look at that and say, okay, we've got a creator God that created everything. Okay, we have this deistic view of the world. Okay, okay, I, I, I understand that. But what does that have to do 
with Jesus. Remember Jesus. He appears to them on the road to Emmaus and he opens up their, their hearts, their minds, their eyes to everything that was said about him in, in Moses and the prophets. In other words, he's saying, this is about me. And you might say, what? There's no name Jesus there. What are you talking about? This is where we get the fullness of Scripture. Why don't you turn to John chapter 1? Again, John 1 speaks to this same moment. The gospel writer John uses imagery and language that, that echoes Genesis 1. He says this, in the beginning, we're familiar with that. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He, a personal pronoun. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And in verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John, writing his gospel account, is able to frame Jesus' life, not just through the three years of his earthly ministry, not just through the 30 years, 33 years of his physical time on earth, but he's able to frame who Jesus is through the eternal truth of all that Jesus has always been. You see the mystery of the Trinity. We get a picture of it all the way back in Genesis 1. The word for God in the Hebrew language is the word Elohim. It's actually a plural word. And yet we don't have a polyistic faith. We don't believe that there are many gods. This is a monotheistic faith, one God but it is a community of one. And we might describe that as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But before God the Son was born on the earth, it was God the Word, the agent through which God created all things. And so to imagine that Jesus, before Jesus was Jesus, you know, the physical body Jesus that was born, right, in Bethlehem, that this Jesus was the Word of God. And as it says in Colossians chapter 1, remember I've mentioned this before, these are all pictures, these are all windows into that, that creation account, these remarkable truths that we can just gloss over, we can think that they're just principles for how to live. Listen to this, this is uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he, this is about Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
this remarkable truth that we begin to realize what Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus is the same thing the Spirit of God says to us today, that Jesus has the first word. That it was Jesus' word, or to say it this way, it was the word of God that is Jesus. And this is mind-boggling. I know it, it takes... It takes faith, it takes imagination perhaps, grounded in God's word, not in fairy tales, but it takes this, this imaginative faith guided by scripture to help us begin to wrap our mind around the mystery of the Trinity and to realize that Jesus is the reason why you and I exist. That God spoke us into existence. That God, as it says in Psalm 139, knits us together in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows our thoughts. And to know this, that you and I are not some cosmic accident. That there is a purpose for your life, not because the world says you've got a purpose. There is a purpose of your life because the one who created you spoke you, created you into existence out of the heart of God, out of the love of God, out of the community of one through Christ for God's self. And your purpose in life is rooted in the heart of God. And so as you move throughout life, as things happen to you, it's a great opportunity that words will come up in your mind. Words will be told to you. Words will come that will define your definition of these things and unless they are words that come from God's self, from the heart of God, to remind you of who you are, of whose you are, of God's purpose for you, of God's longing for you, of God's delight in you, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that, you are, that you're worth not only loving, but you're worth dying for on the cross. That when you hear that Jesus has the first word in your life, it, it reorients your view of your past, your present, and your future. But also what's remarkable is that Jesus doesn't just have the first word in our life. Jesus always has the last word. Again, Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as they re-understood who Jesus was, as they began to, to re-understand everything in Scripture, they realized, oh, 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 his death was foretold by Isaiah the prophet. His death was the reality that all the sacrifices before it were just a foreshadow to. His defeat of death actually ends the curse that began when the first humans ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oh, Jesus isn't this earthly king. He is a cosmic king that has come down to earth and his kingdom is far greater, far more majestic and massive than just a geopolitical move to overthrow the Roman Empire and reestablish the Israel Empire. It redefines everything. And they move from that moment realizing that Jesus not only has the first word, but he has the last word as well. That where people might say, hopeless, Jesus says, there were people who might say, unforgivable. Jesus says, forgivable. 
where people might say, dead end. Jesus says, ah, that's where I do my greatest work. Where people might say, irreconcilable. Jesus says, I can repair that. I can reconcile that. The more we immerse our life in God's word, and I'm going to tell you, this isn't just the New Testament that I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the fullness of Scripture. All 66 books, the old and new, from the beginning to end, when we begin to realize that you can start with every page in Scripture and find your way to Jesus, I found that some of the, the confusing parts, some of the I'll say it this way, the, the horrific parts in the Old Testament, the parts where it seems like God's character isn't one that maybe at first blush I, I, I like or want to worship, I begin to realize, oh, there, there's something deeper going on here. That this is more than just a collection of stories over cultures that have just been bound together. No, this is the unfolding narrative of God that is everything about Jesus. And it's, it's not that I don't understand it, therefore I should cut up Scripture and throw it away, but somehow I need to, to ask God to give me wisdom. God, what are you saying here? What does this have to do with Jesus? How does this transform my view of who you are? And I found that rather than throwing away different parts of Scripture and holding the little that I like, or the part that I feel maybe is more culturally or more appropriate to our modern, modern world, I begin to get inquisitive. I want to ask questions. I want to spend time in prayer. I want to go to books. I want to go to commentators. I want to get together in community. And I want to press in and to wonder, how does this point to Jesus? And I found in that a delight. I found in that an adventure. And I found that that's not only true with Scripture, it's true in my life. And that's the great invitation that God has for you through Jesus. To change everything in your life, that it's not just the first word, but it's the last word. That you would see your divorce through a new lens, that you would see your cancer through a new lens, that you would see your sickness through a new lens, that you would see your unemployment through a new lens, that you would see the reality that you're in. The, these things that perhaps cause you to go the, the opposite direction for God wants you to go, that you would see these things defined by the beginning and the last words that are Jesus. Remember, he says in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. Death doesn't have the last word. Your circumstances don't have the last word. God's enemy does not have the last word. Jesus does. And his words are always words of wholeness, of healing, of completion, of the fullness that our hearts long for that we can't even put into words. So we want to be on this journey with you. I found in my own life that in community, I get a deeper sense, a greater sense of being able to ask questions. I'd love for you, if you don't have yet anybody in your life, to choose Bel Air being the place where you grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is as we open up God's word together. We have life groups that meet in person, not only throughout the city, but life groups are popping up around the nation and and we're trying to have them pop up around the globe. But some of you, you know, you want to gather with other people online. We have life groups online. Ways in which you can follow along with the sermon series. 
or with other resources that we will recommend and provide to you, ways in which you can go into God's Word and see this more than just basic instructions before leaving earth, more than just a a collection of fortune cookie sayings, more than just, you know, a, a list of do's and don'ts or principles, but the living Word of God that loves you, that embraces you, that speaks a truer, more gentle, more powerful world, word than anything else in the world. Jesus wants to narrate your life. He alone has the capacity to do so. And when you allow Jesus to narrate your life accurately, you become a person that narrates your life and the world around you accurately. You stop using words like hopeless, irreconcilable, dead end, unforgivable. One of the greatest gifts that God gives the world through Jesus is the church to be narrators of the world. That when we see things that pop up around the world in our society, that we don't misnarrate it, but we allow the words of Jesus to define properly what is going on, what the opportunity is there, and how we can be part of hope and healing and justice and reconciliation. Let's pray. God, we love you and we come before you in many ways baffled at this truth, this idea that all of Scripture somehow points to Jesus. I confess that I'm going to probably spend a lifetime just scratching the surface on what that even means. And yet we come before you. We want to worship you. We want to trust you. So would your spirit guide us and reveal to us who you are? We pray all these things in your mighty matchless name, Jesus. Amen.